You are listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is BaptistChurch.com. Well, amen. While the children are making their way, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of James. Just go ahead and remain standing for the reading of God's Word. James chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. James chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Let me encourage you, if, if you don't have a Bible, grab that one there in the seat there in front of you. You should find one there. You know, every once in a while, people will actually come up and they'll say, I don't have a Bible. Can I take this Bible? Let me tell you, I know the family that gave these Bibles, and it would tickle them pink to know that you had taken that Bible, carried it home, and we're going to spend time in it. But in James chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be what? So that you may be mature and what? And complete, whole, perfect even, not lacking anything. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We give you glory, and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. And, and let me tell you, the, the sermon will be a little bit different because this year I believe that we need to be better students of God's Word. You're going to probably need to buy you a Bible. I know you like your phone app. But I, I'm, I'm a believer in you being able to leave something one day to your grandchildren. You can't leave them your iPhone. And uh, they'll have no understanding of what impacted your life. So I encourage you to buy a Bible in 2023, a hard copy, and begin to carry that around. That'll, that'll believe, I believe, will bless you. We're going to be doing a little research today, so you're going to need a Bible. Now, I don't know how many of you saw this, but... Um, well, let me just go ahead and introduce you to an individual. This man, is, he's a young man, Damar Hamlin. Damar Hamlin was born March 24, 1998. He played with the University of Pittsburgh. He was selected by the Buffalo Bills in the sixth round of the 2021 NFL Draft. Uh, he's an African-American young man. He's six foot tall even. He's 200 pounds. And he's a defensive safety for the Buffalo Bills. Last Monday night, in Monday night football, it was probably a little over five minutes into the game, not long into the game, this young man, who is a very gifted athlete, made what many believe was a routine tackle. Uh, he, um, he just simply made this tackle, a uh, clean tackle. He then stood up, and when he stood up, he adjusted his helmet, and then he fell straight back flat. In a matter of moments, everybody knew something was wrong with DeMar. Uh, there was dead silence in the stadium. 
you could see immediately people everywhere alarm coaching staff players begin to drop to their knees the medical staff was around this young man and they were doing CPR and I want everybody to pay attention young people I want y'all to pay young people look this way I want you to pay attention DeMar Hamlin in that moment was under cardiac arrest which means he was dead You've heard me say, working as a paramedic for years, I've done CPR up to nearly two hours. It's a very, very difficult situation to be in. Once they started CPR, once they were trying to revive his heart, players realizing the magnitude of what had taken place, you watch these big, massive men, black, white, Cincinnati Bengals, who were the opponents, uh, Buffalo Bills, coaching staff, the entire stadium, which was in Cincinnati, for a big game for Buffalo and Cincinnati, uh, was, was quiet. People were praying. Players were dropping to their knees. They were beginning to pray. For nine minutes, they did CPR. And be honest with you, I want you to listen. I was crying. I was sitting in my living room, and I was weeping. I was crying because I, I love football, and I love the NFL. And, and so I was crying, and... Finally, they must have stabilized him enough at that point by shocking his heart, doing CPR to get him into the ambulance. Again, the entire football stadium was silent all around the world. ESPN commentators, people were so emotional they could hardly even, even make comment at all. The, they left. The question then, would the game continue? The coaches begin to meet together. There's no possibility the game will continue. The game was suspended. It was called. When DeMar Hamlin got to the hospital, he again went into cardiac arrest. They had to once again revive his heart, bring him back. Today, after a solid nearly a week, DeMar Hamlin is beginning to revive. He's coming back together. Let me tell you what I love. Let me give you some things to think about. You're not children, so you can listen and stay focused. The first thing DeMar Hamlin asked when he was able to write, you want to guess what it was? Did the Bills win? And I told Sheila, I said, you know, I don't find that strange because this is a young man that spent his life in football. It's a lot of his life. Now, let me tell you, as far as I know, DeMar Hamlin is a Christian. His nonprofit at about 2,500, a toy drive that he had started to help underprivileged children, I think is about 7 million plus now. It went from a few thousand dollars to over $7 million dollars. CNN posted this yesterday on his first Instagram post. DeMar Hamlin said these words at the end of this post. Listen to what he said. He said, I'm on a long road. Keep praying for me. I thought to myself, you know, we're all on a long road, aren't we? <laughs> and we all need prayer. And, and this is what the book of James is about. It's about God's people. Christians, men and women who've given their life to Christ, 
beginning this long spiritual journey toward maturity and being conformed into the image of Christ. In fact, I made it the title, Conforming into the Image of Christ Hurts. It's a painful process. It's a long process. We have to pray for each other. And so I agree with DeMar Hamlin. We're all on a long journey. We all need prayer. You know, Ruth Bell Graham, you've heard me tell this story, but I think it's so beautiful. Her and Billy Graham were riding along. It was at night. It was raining. It was not a good night to be out on the road. They were on the road, though, and they came to that section of the interstate where it said work in progress, construction going on, work in progress. She reached over, Ruth Bell tapped Billy Graham and said, you know, Billy, that's all of us. We're just, a, we're just a work in progress. Now, I want you to stay with me here because the quote at the end of this message is worth listening because it shocked me. Jordan Peterson said this. He said, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. Isn't that good? So here we have this man by the name of James. Now, real quickly, told you last week, but I want to get into more detail. There are four prospects here. There's number one, a man by the name of James. He was the son of Alphaeus. He was one of the disciples. Mark 3 talks about this. Then there's James, another James in the New Testament. He's the father of Judas. Now let me tell you, there are two Judases. One is Judas Iscariot, then there's another. Wouldn't you hate to have that? Wouldn't you have hated to have been the guy named Judas at the same time Judas Iscariot did all that he did? But there's James, the father of Judas, one of the disciples, but not Judas Iscariot. But he was not a peripheral figure, so we don't believe he wrote this book. Then there's James, the son of Zebedee, James and John. Those two we're familiar with. And a lot of times people open the book of James and say, well, maybe he wrote the book. No, he didn't write the book because by Acts 12, he is killed, he's martyred. And this book is written later than that date, so we know that he didn't write the book. So we believe the book of James is written by James, everybody listen, the half-brother of Jesus. Now you may say, well, why do you call him the half-brother? Why would we call him the half-brother? Because Jesus had a different father, didn't he? His father was God. In fact, in Luke 1, 26-38, the Bible says, Luke tells us that Jesus was born of a virgin. And so when you look at the book of James, you see a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He never mentions the fact that he's the half-brother of Jesus, but he is. Think about growing up with Jesus. <laughs> wow. Why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? Mom, why didn't Jesus ever get a spanking? He never gets in trouble. You never put him in time out. But the reality is, is that this James, who wrote this book, lived in the company, grew up, listen, grew up with Jesus, the Son of God. The Bible says that he's listed among the first. You know, Mary and Joseph, everybody listen, had no sexual contact until Jesus was born. There was no consummating of the marriage 
until after the birth of Jesus Christ, and then they went on to have more children. In fact, it's believed that they had four sons and three daughters. In fact, let me just give you some information here. I want you to take your Bible and turn to John 7. So take a left, go to John 7. Let's, let's begin a little bit of a journey here. I want to show you the joy and the excitement of having a Bible. In John chapter 7, John, the Gospel of John chapter 7, beginning at verse 3. J James here is the oldest of those four brothers and three sisters, we believe. So after Jesus is born, Mary and Joseph go on to have more children. James was probably the first. But in, J in John chapter 7, beginning at verse 3, watch this. And I have to, Jesus, Jesus' brother said to him, you ought to leave here, go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Now look at verse 5. Everybody there say amen. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Let me tell you, like I told you last week, Jesus, when he was growing up, was not raising up birds in the backyard. Jesus was not multiplying the bread at the supper table. There was no evidence of the deity of Jesus Christ outside of the fact that he was perfectly obeying his parents. And so the Bible tells us here, John tells us that James, this James, who wrote this book, was not a believer. Ethan, you study apologetics even right now. He's taking, he's taking a course on apologetics. Apologetics is defending the faith. It is being able to stand in the gap and tell people not only why you believe in the historicity of Christ, but to be able to, to defend that, that Jesus was a real historical figure. One of the beliefs, one of the things that is very clear, it's an apologetic tool, Ethan, is that the Bible does not fabricate. It tells us truth. And it says here that Jesus' siblings did not believe that he was the Son of God. They had seen no evidence of that. And that's what John says here. It's a powerful proof when it comes to the truth of the gospel. So this James is uniquely different. The half-brother of Jesus. Fascinating individual. Well, let's move on. This James is a powerful, pivotal figure in the Old Testament. Take a, take a uh, well, if you're at John, take a right and go over to Acts. Remember, I told you you were going to be in your Bible today, and, and uh, I want you to see this. I want you to see the 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 concisive nature of the Bible. In Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 14, watch what he said here. If you're there, say amen. In chapter uh, 1, verse 14, I have to find it. It says, they all joined together, talking and named all the disciples. They all joined together. Now, what's going on here? This is, this is after the death of Jesus Christ. He told them to go to Jerusalem. He said, wait there. Uh, they're waiting for the coming Holy Spirit. 
Remember, this is after the ascension, the death, the burial, and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. But watch what James, watch what Acts says here. In Acts 14, it says, they, verse chapter 1, verse 14, they all joined together, that's the disciples, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with who? Guess what's happened? Something has so altered James's life that this man who mockingly wanted to remove Jesus in John chapter 7, is now a believer, sold out completely to Christ, and is now waiting on the coming Holy Spirit, waiting on the day of Pentecost. He's there waiting. Take a right from Acts and go over to 1 Corinthians 15. I love this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look at verse 7. Because, boy, there's just so much proof this, of this individual. This is so good. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, it talks about all the people that Jesus appeared to. Then in verse 7, then he appeared to who? To James, then to who? Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to who? <laughs> Who's me? The apostle Paul. He appeared to James, then to the apostles, and then last of all, Paul said, he appeared to me. Boy, I like that. Listen to what John MacArthur said about that. It is interesting, Jesus reveals himself to James in a personal post-resurrection revelation. My friend, let me put it as honest as I can put it. This would be like my oldest son, my oldest grandson, Ethan, claiming one day walking out at the age of 30 and saying that he is the Son of God. And his brothers, Caleb and Titus, go, yeah, right. And while he begins to preach and to do the things that he does, they are not convinced, they're not believers. It is only at the point as he begins to reveal that divine nature and eventually he begins to do supernatural miracles, things begin to happen. And then finally the Roman government kills him, buries him, and he comes back to life. And the first thing he does, he doesn't go to the church, he doesn't go to spiritual leaders, he finds Caleb his brother and he says Caleb it's me it's Ethan and it's real and from that moment on Caleb who's mocked and made fun and refused to believe now Caleb is convinced that his brother is actually the son of God and he goes out and he changes the world even at the point of the threat of his own death that's this James. Jude is another brother. Turn over to the right. Go all the way back to Revelation. Right before Revelation, you'll come to a painful book. This is a book, when I read it, I tremble. In the book of Jude, right before Revelation, Revelation uh, Jude, Jude 1. It's only one chapter. This is another brother. You remember I said Jesus had how many brothers? Everybody look this way. How many? We believe he had four brothers and three sisters. 
In Jude verse 1, it says Jude, just like James, how does he introduce himself? Jude, he doesn't say a half-brother of Jesus. He doesn't say any of that. He says a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of who? James. I could go on. There's other passages here. Acts chapter 12, verse 17. In fact, turn there. Acts chapter, take a left and go back over to Acts, Acts chapter uh, 12, verse 17. You'll find James all the way through the book of Acts in the early developing New Testament church. Acts chapter, chapter 12, verse 17, it said, Peter motioned with his hands for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell who? Who does Peter has been in prison. The church is praying for him, the early New Testament church. Peter gets out of prison, and what is the first thing he does? He says, listen, the first thing you do is go tell who? Tell James. If I'm boring you, you're probably in the wrong place. You need to get an early start, go home and eat lunch and watch football. And you need to understand one day... Just like Damar Hamlin, your heart's going to stop. And in an instant, you're going to stand before the creator of the universe. And what you valued and what you lived for and what was the priority of all your life will not get you into eternity into heaven. If you're bored with God's Word and you're bored with Jesus Christ, then chances are you'll never see heaven. But this James is a fascinating individual. And in James chapter 1, he begins to, in fact, I lost my place. I got so excited. But in James chapter 1, he starts James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. His Greek is immaculate. You may say, wow, you know, I thought he was the son of a carpenter. You know what most New Testament scholars say? They say that his Greek is immaculate. It's unbelievable. It's the best Greek in the New Testament, even better than the Apostle Paul. People say, well, why is that? Because it is believed that because of where James lived, James lived among Gentiles, and many of them spoke Greek. He was brilliant. There's 50 imperatives, 50 imperatives, 50 commands in the book of James. 50 times God, tell, God through James tells you and I what to do. But one thing that James understood, he understood what it meant to mature and to grow and to be Christ-like. Spiritual maturity. And he gives us a clue when he says, James, a what? A servant. You know, you and I can never be conformed into the image of Christ until we first deny ourselves. You and I can never be conformed into the image of Christ until we develop that, what we call a servant heart. The Greek word there is doulos. It means servant. It means bond servant. It means slave. If I'm going to mature and being conformed into the image of Christ, then I've got to begin to develop a heart that just is willing to serve everybody. I just have a servant heart. It doesn't matter whether I'm at the hospital. It doesn't matter whether I'm in the office. It doesn't matter whether I'm in a classroom. Wherever I'm at, I just absolutely thrive on serving people. Have a servant heart. Starts with that. Mother Teresa said this, she said, we must free ourselves to be filled with God. Now listen to what she said. 
She said, even God cannot feel what is full. If I, if, I, if I looked at you and said, you know, I bought you. If I walked up to Mariah and I said, Mariah, uh, Sheila and I, we love you so much. And you just mean so much to us. And we, we found you a pair of shoes. They're a pair of shoes your mom had said you really wanted. And, and we want you to have these shoes. Well, let me tell you what. If I give her that gift, first thing she's got to do to get those shoes on, she's going to have to do what? She's going to have to take the old shoes off, right? Mariah, is that right? You see, the reality is, is what Mother Teresa said. God cannot fill what is, not, what is full. In fact, Philippians 2.7 says this. You know what Paul said to the church at Philippi? Paul said this. He said, Jesus, being, form, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant, slave. That's what it means. If I'm going to spiritually grow and be everything Christ would have me to be, then I'm going to have to come to a point that I'm going to have to empty myself and me in order to be like him. Chuck Swindoll said it this way. Well, he tells this story. I thought this was funny. He said, I heard about a pastor who was voted the most humble pastor in America. And the congregation, in response to that, gave the pastor a medal that said to the most humble pastor in America, the following Sunday, the congregation took it away from the pastor because he wore it. Are you getting it? F.B. Mayer said this, or Meyer, he said, only the hope of a decreasing self is an increasing Christ. Oswald Chambers said, wouldn't it be marvelous? Wouldn't it be a marvelous, listen to this, wouldn't it be a marvelous place if nobody cared who got the credit? You know, I thank God. I thank God sometimes for the willies and the bells and those people that, you know, when, when pastor's sick and we're trying to get the buildings ready for Sunday and whether it's Willie running a vacuum cleaner in here or me calling and saying, Willie, have you checked everything? And he laughed and said, Bell's here. Don't you just love those people with that servant heart? And he writes, look at what he says here. He said to the 12, to the 12 tribes that are scattered among the nations, this is a church that has been persecuted. In Acts chapter 7, the martyrdom of Stephen. Acts chapter 8, Paul begins to afflict and attack the church, and so the church was forced out, and it went everywhere. You realize this church goes everywhere. Do you realize how far we're represented? How much of this Metro Jackson area we're able to affect? as we're scattered, as we go out, affecting the lives of people. Do you realize that when your pastor gets a cup of coffee, I'm trying to figure out how to get the conversation to the kingdom of God. Do you realize that last week when I sat with a pastor in Cracker Barrel and the young lady came to wait on us, do you realize that I was trying to figure out how to get the kingdom of God into the life of that waitress? How can we pray for you? And all of a sudden you'll see a sometimes almost a shocked look and 
this young African-American beautiful young lady said, I'm getting ready to move and you could see fear and she said, but I'm going back to school. And I said, well, we're going to pray for you. I was with another pastor friend of mine. We were in Cracker Barrel one day. We asked a young lady how we could pray for her. She began to cry. And she said, to be honest with you, the cook in the kitchen back there is making my life absolute hell. And she just wept in a crowded Cracker Barrel. Well, the first thing me and him wanted to do is go back there and whoop snot out of the guy in the kitchen. And this girl, this girl was sobbing and crying. In other words, it was almost like sexual harassment. I wanted to say, wait a minute, I got a lawyer I can call. And she just wept and cried. I mean openly, I mean sobbing, crying, where people all in the dining area begin to get quiet and begin to look, just like in that, on that football field last week when the Cincinnati Stadium grew quiet. They grew quiet. They all prayed with us for that waitress. You know, it was said that David Robinson, the great NBA player, just the legend, one a, a godly, godly man, this great man. It was said that David Robinson one day, who played for the Spurs, San Antonio Spurs, the reason I remember, because I was in officer's school out in San Antonio, and they made it clear to me if I wasn't a Spurs fan, they'd throw me out of officer's school. David Robinson was sitting and eating with his family when a woman came over to this big, massive, good-looking African-American guy that can every bit play almost as good as Michael Jordan and definitely LeBron. I thought I'd take a few jabs. This woman came over. She had a bulletin. This sweet little African-American woman, she came over, she had a bulletin, and on the front of it was a picture of her brother. And she said, we just buried my brother, and said, I just want you to know, he loved you so much. He was such a Spurs fan. And she began to cry, and she was trying to tell him. And, and, and he signed the bulletin. She wanted him to sign the bulletin. David Robinson signed the bulletin, handed it back to her, and he said, would you mind if I pray for you? In this crowded restaurant, this big, massive African-American, whose hands look twice as big as mine, he wrapped his, he wrapped his hands, completely covering hers all the way up her arm. He began to wrap his arms around her and he began to pray over her and the whole restaurant shut down quieted down out of respect you know we're a scattered church but boy we are an effective church and the goal is clear in verse 2, he says, consider it pure joy. In other words, we said this. You and I go into problems. We go into difficulties. Things go wrong in our life. We have a spiritual gift. We have a joy that wells up in us because we know that a sovereign God is allowing this to come into our life. You and I are held in the palm of his hand. Anything that comes into your life has first come through his hand. Never forget that. Nothing never happens without his permission. Remember that Job, Satan couldn't touch Job until God gave him permission to do so. And everybody listen, when it comes into your life through the sovereign hand of God, the reason you and I can have a joy is because we know somehow this is going to work for our good because all things work together for our good, right? Right? 
And the goal is clear. What does God want? What does God want in trials and suffering and difficulties? He said, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of what? Of your faith develops what? Perseverance. I wrote this down. The goal is clear. A faith that perseveres in the trials, in the difficulties. That word, when he says various trials, that word various is in the, in the Greek is the, where we get our word polka dot. You remember when they used to do splatter painting? You hang a white t-shirt up there and you take different colors and you just throw it against the shirt? That's exactly what that word means. It's polka dot. It means trials that are constantly coming our way, thrown at us. We are looking at them as tools in the hand of a sovereign God that's conforming us into the image of Christ. Right? Swindoll said, if faith, it is a, faith is a muscle. If you can't test it, you can't trust it. Now, I'm not going to be much longer, but I want you to listen real closely now, and I'm going to give you an illustration that I believe will hang with you for the rest of your life. The great danger is right here. Let me read it again. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance is patience, the ability to stand under. Listen, I, the, the perfect example is Paul Anderson. I think Paul Anderson was at one time the strongest man, may still be the strongest man in the world. He was an unbelievable godly Christian man, this big barrel-chested man. He would go to high schools, and I, they said there was, a, there was this big oak table, this massive table that was set up there in front of the high school student body and in front of the teachers. And at a certain point, they would show how heavy the table was. And then Paul Anderson invited these students to come. It was on tall legs. And he got up under this table. This man that could lift the equivalent of over 5,000 pounds. He told as many students to get on the tables as possibly could. And these students were doing everything they could because they wanted to get that table to where he couldn't pick it up. And they were piled onto that table, hanging onto one another. And all of a sudden, this man picks this table up on his shoulders and is balancing and kind of tipping. And they're all hollering and screaming, delighted with joy. But that's the picture of persevering under a trial. The enemy is trying to crumble your legs to get you to give up, to give in. The enemy wants you to throw in the towel and quit. But, but the key, in verse 4, and the NIV is a poor translation here, it says, let perseverance, let it have its perfect work. That's the great danger. We don't let it. The Christian Standard Bible said this of that passage. It interpreted, translated it this way, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature, complete, lacking nothing. We don't let. That's the problem. Spurgeon said of this passage, he said, faith is as vital to salvation as the hardest to the body. Therefore, the javelins of the enemy are mainly aimed at this essential grace. Your faith, listen to what Spurgeon said, your faith is obnoxious to Satan and a lost world. That's what the devil's going after. 
the suffering, the trials, the difficulties that come into your life, the things that are just about ready to make you give up, throw in the towel and give up, that's exactly what the devil wants you to do. That's exactly what the devil wants you to do because, listen, Satan hates your faith and that's what he's after. If he can destabilize your faith, if he can destabilize your faith, my friend, he has effectively shut you down as a witness for Christ. And the greatest danger is sometimes in your life and in my life, we avoid trials, conflicts, and confrontation. We don't want anybody to come into our life and threaten our sedentary, comfortable life. We avoid trials. And if we have trials at all, this is the mistake we make. We talk about our trials being the problems with our health. That has nothing to do with this passage. Many of the trials that come to do with our health are because of our poor health decisions. Have nothing to do with God. What, what the writer here, what James is talking about, what the Holy Spirit was meaning here is a suffering that comes because I'm living out the principles of God's kingdom. When I look at Josh Allen, this quarterback, this unbelievable quarterback, and I see him as he's looking at DeMar Hamlin, who's do, they're doing CPR on him, and you look at this future Hall of Famer, possibly to the Super Bowl, and this is his look. You're not used to seeing the guy that you ran out on the field with now dead. But I don't know who it was that showed this big African-American lineman. He dropped to his knees, and you could just see the urgency and the passion by which he was praying. And I thought to myself in that moment, all of heaven was listening and watching. The problem is sometimes in our life, we live our life as a victim, nursing grievances, blaming everybody else. Our trials, our difficulty, our suffering is somebody else's fault. And we never come to the point that we begin to realize, God, you are sovereign, you're in control. This has come into my life. God, help me to use this. You use this, God, to mature me and conform me into the image of Christ. God, don't let me get bitter. Because that causes us never to mature. Two illustrations. I read one here. It's out of John Maxwell's book. It's called The Difference Maker. It's an Adidas comment on an Adidas commercial or an ad. And this is what it said. It said, impossible is just a big word thrown around by small men who find it easier to live in a world they've been given than to explore the power they have to change it. Impossible is not a fact. It's an opinion. Impossible is not a declaration. It's a dare. Impossible is potential. Impossible is temporary. Impossible is nothing. went on to make this statement, most of the great work in this world was done by men and women who didn't believe, who did not believe that what they were doing was impossible. Talent is certainly beneficial, but the only, but only the right attitude can release it to reach, to reach its potential. 
Wow. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says with God all things are what? Possible. You say, well, I'm not much. You don't know what I grew up in. You don't know my home. You don't know my situation. You don't know the mistakes that I've made. You don't know I'm disqualified. God will never use me. My friend never tell God what he won't do. Now let me close with an illustration. And when I read this, it shook me. Because I have unbelievable respect for this woman. No woman has affected a single little bent over life like this woman, Mother Teresa who spent her life in the Calcutta among the leper colony. Here she is, all been a, people from all over the world have come to walk the path of M Mother Teresa. She's the one person that reprimanded Bill Clinton and literally chewed him up over his views on abortion. At the end of that meeting, when that public uh, uh, medal giving was given to her was over with, uh, news people came to Bill Clinton and said, my goodness, you let that little woman rake you over the coals. Why didn't you say something? He looked at them and said, Mother Teresa, you want me to correct Mother Teresa? And his answer was like a moment ago, right. I'm not that stupid. Listen to what Mother Teresa, this is out of a book. It's called To Love and Be Loved by Jim Toey. He was a trusted advisor and a friend to Mother Teresa. Listen to what he said. You think sometimes you, you can't be used. Her prayer to the archbishop, listen to what she, listen to what she disclosed in her prayer to the archbishop. She said, please pray specifically for me that I may not spoil the work of Christ and that of our Lord, that he may show himself. Now listen to what she said. There is a terrible darkness within me as if everything was dead. It has been like this more or less from the time I started the Lord's work. Ask our Lord to give me courage. When I read those words, where she said these words, for there is a terrible darkness within me as if everything I do is dead. It has been like this more or less from the day I started the work. That little bent-up, bent-over woman who goes down in history, who affected the lives. Boy, the church failed with COVID. Oh, we, we bombed out. We failed. We closed our churches at the first sign of a disease. We ostracized and alienated people that didn't fit that scenario, you can wear masks six feet apart. You just don't care about humanity. Oh, you're an anti-vaxxer. You know, we just, we were popping labels on everybody. COVID shut down the church. We started walking by fear, not by faith. This woman could easily attract. You know what we talk about when we go to Zimbabwe? We talk about Zimbabwe and Uganda being the highest AIDS 
epidemic, HIV positive population. Do you realize when you take for a family of four kids and your wife and you go into an area where they're the number one country in the world in HIV and you think to yourself, you know, am I going to walk by fear or am I going to walk by faith? Mother Teresa walked by faith, not by fear. And that's what God's called you to do. And let me tell you, whatever God's called you to do, whatever purpose and plan he has for your life, the reality is is that you have an enemy. And that enemy's going to do everything that he can to get in the way of what God wants to do, not only in you, but through you. And your enemy, Satan, is going after your faith. Because if he can destabilize your faith, if he can begin to cause you to walk in fear, then you will never be what God intended you to be. And all God's people said, Amen, let's stand. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you, and Lord, we love you and we praise you. We give you all the glory and honor, and Lord, even now, as we've looked to your word and been challenged by this by this New Testament figure, this writer of the book of James, this unique individual who grew up in the company of Jesus, but never knew. I can imagine days when Jesus looked at James or James looked at Jesus and said, come on, let's go throw the ball. He never knew that he was tossing a ball with the creator of the universe, robed in the flesh of man. He didn't realize that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He didn't realize that when they were bending over a table and they were sawing and working and hammering and taking that plane and beginning to shave and get it that smooth, that moment when Jesus probably looked at James and said, James, feel that. Feel how smooth that table is. James never thought in that moment that the one who created the stars, the one who formed DNA, the one who brought the human body out of the dust of the earth, the one who created the solar system, was making a table, smiling and looking at James and saying, Feel how smooth. May we never forget that that same loving Savior now lives in us. And He's in the process of smoothing off the edges and taking away those things that do not look like Jesus. And boy, it hurts. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes, dear Lord, all of us, including the pastor, including me, just want to give up, just throw in the towel and say, God, I'll just never get there. But Jesus Christ said, oh, yes, you will. You're going to be conformed into my image and the finished product will be on the other side. But Lord, I pray for a man or woman, boy or girl, who may be listening to me. They've been here today and God, you've spoken to their heart. They know they're not saved. They know if they died today, they don't know where they'd spend eternity this past week. Willie Cox called me upset. His 49-year-old brother had died, passed away. We never know. 24-year-old Cardiac arrest, had he not been in a place that he was at, he would be dead now. May we realize that life is short. 
and that we can never put off salvation. So if there's somebody here who's never given their heart and their life to you, we pray today that they would come and say, I want to be saved. Lord, I may not be able to counsel them, but I pray as Ledge and Russell will be coming, that, Lord, they can begin to help them understand what it means to be saved, truly saved. Pray for others that may need to recommit, rededicate that life, and pray for some that need to plant their life in a church like this and say, I want to make this my home. God, speak to us. Maybe it's just doing business at the altar. May we do that. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You come. May never be a moment like this moment. I'm probably not going to counsel with you or pray with you, so I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, Junior, I don't want to get you sick, buddy. But I want you to just go to that altar. Russell's here. Ledge is here. Ledge can counsel with you. These men can tell you how to be saved. You come. You come. May never be a moment like this moment.